Two of you are looking forward to the word. What about the rest of you? <laughs> hey! <laughs> Great to be with you uh, this evening and share God's word. And to all those who are joining us online and watching at other times, we welcome you. We know God's word is relevant in all times, in all seasons. So we've been working through this DNA series and um, we've actually gone through all six now. And I'm just circling back and saying a little more about a couple of them. So uh, next week will be the final week of this series. But this weekend, I just wanted to say something more about discipleship. So here's our DNA value on that. It says this, making disciples is a clear mandate from Christ. This requires a strong missional focus on evangelism and training in spiritual growth and holy living. Done effectively, this will produce and promote growth and health in and among the churches. And in the previous message on this, these are the things we looked at in terms of Jesus' discipleship style. We noted this from his life, from a sweep of the Gospels. He, he prayerfully selected those that he invested into. Before Jesus um, chose a 12 to, to hang with, he actually spent the whole night previous in prayer. So this was not just some kind of, you know, any mini, miny, moe exercise. He prayed and sought God on, uh, on who to choose. There was high invitation in the methodology of Jesus. So it wasn't just, I wonder if you want to have coffee at 7 a.m. on a Tuesday for half an hour. That's not how Jesus rolled. He said, come follow me. Do life with me. So that was a highly invitational lifestyle invite from Jesus. Come and let's do life together. We're going to go everywhere together. There was verbal instruction in Jesus' method. We noted how today it's become unpopular to, to actually teach someone and give them direction, tell them what to do. Jesus had no such reservation. He spent much of his time teaching, not only listening, but teaching and giving instruction. There was mutual responsibility. Jesus didn't do for anyone what they could do for themselves. He expected them to serve him as much as he served them. And there was deliberate limitation in his style. And it's this one that I want to drill down on a little bit further this weekend and spend a, bit, a, little, more, a little more time on. Now, this is not a comprehensive list by any means, but it's a starting point. And as you look at those things, I reckon you'll, along with me, see some development areas for your life. In fact, I reckon if we went even a little further than that and were honest, we'd probably say... To be honest, I'm not really kicking goals on the discipleship front. If you ask me, John, in the last year or two years, whose faith have you developed? Not just who have you led and introduced to Christ, but who have you walked alongside and helped add to their faith? As, as Isaac spoke to us about a couple of weeks ago, because it's not enough just to introduce someone to Jesus. We're supposed to disciple them. We're supposed to walk alongside them. We're supposed to train them in the ways of God. And if I ask you, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or for verbal feedback, but if I said, who's done that in the last year? Who's actually introduced someone to Jesus and walked alongside them and helped them add to their faith and flourish in their faith? Probably there'd be only a very few hands go up. So now that I've got you feeling guilty and inadequate and like a failure and ready to hand in your resignation papers, all right, then here's my resignation for Team Jesus. Obviously, I'm no good at this. I have your excuse. I've already pre-thought of this. Here's your excuse. Here's my excuse. This is what we say, don't we? I don't have time for that. 
I don't have time. We feel time poor in our society nowadays. And we give ourselves a pass because of that. I don't have capacity to invest in the growth of another person because I just can't fit it in. Here's the problem with that. While it might be justifiable excuse, doesn't help us much. Have you worked out how to get more than 168 hours in the week? Because I sure haven't. I've been trying hard, but I can't find a way of extracting any more hours into my week. And so while she might say, that's my excuse, it doesn't actually help us. It doesn't solve anything. So I wonder if a better line of thinking for us is, would I be more effective if I narrowed my focus down? You know, many of us spread ourselves so thin that we lose taste. Because that's what happens when you spread things too thin, right? They lose taste. And some of our lives are like that. We've lost taste because we've spread ourselves too thin. We're trying to reach the entire world instead of attuning to the voice of God and responding not to everything, but to the few things that he wants us to be involved in. Here's our issue. We're so busy trying to save everyone that we're not discipling anyone. We're skimming on the surface of hundreds of lives instead of going deep and making a meaningful difference in a few. You say, John, well, I want to help everyone. I want to help all people. Well, don't we all? I get it. From a heart perspective, we want to help everybody. But Jesus didn't do it that way. Jesus decided deep was better than wide. And the lifestyle of Jesus preaches to us, you're better off doing the same. He limited his investment to 12 people. He said, these are the 12 that I'm restricting my influence to. And these are the 12 guys that I'll be discipling. Are you ready for the awkward part of that conversation? Once you draw that circle and say, they're the 12 in my circle, guess what? Here's the awkward part. You're leaving more people out than you're allowing in. That's why we struggle so much with this. It sounds kind of mean, doesn't it? By drawing a circle and saying, they're my 12, they're my small group, these are the people that God is calling me to invest into. We're actually leaving more people out than we're letting in. And for big-hearted people that want to help everybody, this kind of sounds a bit crude. Now, if you're just saying, John, I could never do it. I could never decide intentionally to leave people out. That's okay. It may not apply to you. This only applies to people who want to be Jesus followers. If you're not interested in that, then you've got no problem. Carry on willy-nilly. Don't worry about where your time goes. Just make it up as you go. Don't worry about any of this stuff. But if you want to be a Jesus follower, it's time to do an inventory about where our time is going. Well, Jono, my next question then is why didn't Jesus pick more than 12? I mean, why not 24? Why not 112? Why didn't he make a bigger circle? Because apparently the Messiah knew what we struggle to accept, that our most valuable resource, our most valuable commodity is a limited one, time. 
Time is a limited resource. And if you want to be effective in your role as a disciple maker of Jesus, we must reckon with this. We must stop trying to fight against it. And we must reckon with it. We must accept that time, our most valuable resource, is a limited one. As a culture, we're kicking against this, aren't we? We're trying multitasking. Well, we'll just multitask. We'll do a number of things simultaneously. How's that working for you? Studies show it's not working for us. When we try and do five things all at once, we just wind up giving 20% of ourselves to five things. But actually, the, the most recent science around this is that we're not actually achieving any more by trying to take on more tasks than one at once. Some of the ladies in the room might want to push back on that and say, of course we can multitask, we're female. Well, I get it, but unfortunately the research is showing when it comes to work that requires mental engagement, we can only do one thing at a time. Our most valuable resource is time and it's a limited resource. How we struggle to accept it though, we get to the end of the year, right? And we get all reflective between December 28 and 31, partly because we ate too much at Christmas time. And partly because it's kind of the only time of the year we've got any space at all in our calendar. So for those few days, we start to ask ourselves big questions about, where's my life going? Am I achieving anything? What am I really doing? And for those few days, we get all reflective about our life and we burst out of the blocks, don't we, on January 1st? And we say, this will be my year. But without any reflection on why last year wasn't our year, we'll just do what people say is insanity. Do the same thing and expect different results. This is us. We keep trying to squeeze more out of the same amount of time. And Jim Collins has some great wisdom for us here. He says that when it comes to things like New Year's revolution, resolutions, um, he says that, before we write a to-do list, we need to start with a stop-doing list because we can't just keep adding, adding, adding. At some point, at some point, we've got to shed in order to add. When it comes to people and pouring into the lives of others, the same applies. From a heart perspective, we never want to stop investing. We want to give everything to everyone. We want to save them all. But the danger of that mindset is we'll end up discipling no one. We cannot do it all. So how do we know where to invest our time? In God's word this weekend in 2 Timothy chapter 2, there's wisdom for us. I mentioned this scripture last weekend in just passing. I want to take a bit of a further look here because this is older leader Paul writing to the young leader Timothy to set him up to win. And importantly, he says here who to focus on in terms of investing more, but he also goes here, who to invest less into. And for all the big-hearted, soft-natured people among us, and that'll be many of us, some of these ideas are going to be real tough to engage with. What do you mean invest less? Well, yes, Paul's already onto this idea of stop doing 2,000 years before Jim Collins mentions it, Paul knows that you can't just spread yourself everywhere. You'll end up having no effect at all. Second Timothy 2, it says this, Timothy, my dear son, 
be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Endure suffering with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get caught up, tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for they they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And hard-working farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labour. Think about what I'm saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. We're going to jump down to verse 14. It says this, Remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Verse 16, avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behaviour. This kind of talk spreads like cancer, as in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they have turned some away. From the faith. This is the word of the Lord, and may He add His blessing to it. What a profound piece of sacred writings here. We, we learn that the reason why Paul invested in Timothy so heavily, and in turn, wise instruction about how Timothy should do the same. He writes, Timothy, the reason I poured so much into you, the, the qualities you need to be looking for are these. So we're now looking at how to know when to invest more. Paul explains that, Timothy, you need to search out for faithful people, people that are dependable. And at least in the context of the Paul and Timothy relationship, that faithfulness was was reflected by their willingness to suffer. This is seen in verse 3. Suffering was a distinct thing between Paul and Timothy. See, Paul was in prison because of his spreading the gospel. And he pleads with Timothy right throughout this letter, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of suffering for the Lord. Continue, continue our relationship, even though it will probably cost you because by you associating with me, Timothy, it will put you in the firing line. But stay with me, bro. Don't be afraid to suffer for the Lord. This is a big theme running through the whole book. And you say, well, that's just a Paul and Timothy dynamic. Sure it is. And you might say, well, I don't really, you know, I can't see how that applies to me at all because I'm not really in prison and I'm not really needing someone to stick by me faithfully through such an experience. I get it, but I think there's a principle here still. When the going gets tough, is this a person who disappears off the scene or is this person a stayer? Will this person stick around when the going gets tough because the going will get tough if you're following Jesus? And many people won't stick around. They'll choose to run. Many people did. They ran from Jesus. They peeled off Paul. And and Paul's warning, they'll peel off you. Because this whole idea of following Jesus is never a walk in the park. At some point in time, it's going to bite. It's going to cost you. And people worthy of your time investment, they won't run at the sight of pain. 
They'll stick with you. They'll stay the course. They'll recognize this as part of the gospel call. And Paul says to Timothy, when you find that, invest in such a person. You've found someone to pour yourself into, people that aren't quick to quit, that have a stickability about them. These are the people to invest into. In verse 2, Paul advises a young protege, Timothy, where to sow, and he says, find reliable people, people willing to suffer, and then teach these truths to these trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. This is how the good news of Jesus passes down generationally. One faithful person finding another faithful person, finding another faithful person, finding another faithful person. Do I need to keep going? Finding another faithful person. You get it, the picture? One faithful person finding another faithful person and generationally the baton just keeps going down. So when we invest in someone else, we, we shouldn't just have eyes on them. We actually have eyes on the generation following them and making sure they're faithful people who will be able to teach down the next generation. Many of us can probably identify someone who's invested in us in such a way taught us about God's love and grace and mercy. But, you know, it's never designed to stop at us. We're supposed to pass that message on. We're supposed to pass on the good news. Some of you are thinking, that's great in principle, John. Just one thing, you nailed me from the outset. I don't have time. And it's not because I don't have a heart for this. In fact, I'm helping plenty of people already. And there's so many needy people in my life. I haven't got time to invest in anybody else. Here's the thing. Here's something we need to be very, very, very careful about. We need to be careful about being so need-centric that we miss the, the, the possibilities of building the kingdom. Much of the time, we never get around to discipling and building capacity for God's kingdom work because there's something more urgent that looks like it needs our attention. And there's a lure of sorts in being needed, isn't there? That's why we finish each year going, where did my time go? Most of the time, it went on need. It happened again. I haven't invested in another person because we got caught up with the tyranny of the urgent and we missed what was important. We intended to catch up with our neighbour. His name's Corey and he's showing a lot of interest in faith. And we intended to catch up with him and open the Bible and do an alpha course with him. But our neighbour on the other side, needy Nigel, He's just always there needing help. And so we never get around to curious Corey because needy Nigel is there with his hand out all the time needing help. And it's on you, isn't it, to win back his trust after he's been hurt by the church. It's on you to give God a good name. And time and time and time again, we find ourselves drawn into need. Why is this? I think a couple of reasons. It, it seems urgent. It's the obvious one. And it also delivers a sense of accomplishment for us. There's a sense of accomplishment that we did some good. It seems urgent. We see that Nigel's lawn's overgrown and his two-year-old son is out there playing in them and it's Snake City and, and you have a lawnmower and he doesn't have a lawnmower and you look across and you think, how can I just let that picture go on? I must go and meet the need. And all the while, you never get around to catching up with Corey because you're forever meeting the need. 
Now, there are times when urgent should win. This week, I cancelled a number of meetings I had planned due to a funeral because that's urgent. And that's totally appropriate then to cancel some things that weren't urgent. There's times in life to do that because this demands our attention and this is really, really, really important. But it's, that's not the issue, is it? It's our routines. It's when you look back over a, a one-year, a two-year, a three-year period and you, and you see, I've never actually invested in anybody else. I've just been caught up in need all of my time. All of my time, all of my time is going on what seems urgent. None of my time is going towards building capacity. Jesus didn't fall into that trap. Paul didn't fall into that trap. And Paul was trying to make sure Timothy and in turn us don't fall into that trap. Notice what's missing in your Bible reading this weekend. It doesn't say, Timothy, head out into the streets Find the greatest, most urgent need you can find and spend all of your time meeting that need. It's not there. It's not there. It says, Timothy, find someone faithful who's just willing to turn up to serve even when it hurts. And when you find that person, Timothy, back the truck up and tip all that you've got onto them and bless them and invest in them and train them. Understand Time is a limited resource, Timothy, so draw your circle carefully and pour yourself into the ones that God has led to you. Paul goes further than just suggesting Timothy draws a circle here, though. Paul qualifies who does not belong in the circle. That's brutal. That's harsh. Nobody wants to go there. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul puts pen to paper and says, here's who deserves less of your time, Timothy. How to know when invest less. Can I state the obvious? This is something nobody wants to talk about, like nobody. If you're in a team meeting at this point in the conversation when somebody says, so who's our time wasters? Who should we stop investing into like today? Who doesn't belong in our circle anymore? I reckon all the eyes are going to go whoop, and hit the floor and all the mouths are going to go whoop, and shut up because we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be the person that makes this call. But Paul goes there. He doesn't just give us a principle. He gives us a person. He puts names to this. It's full on. Why do that, Paul? Because I'm setting Timothy up to win. That's why. He's like, Timothy, you need to know. You must realise that some people don't deserve any more of your time. And I want to help you identify who to put more effort in. But I also want you to know who to put less effort into. And I'm going to provide you with the direction on both fronts. And just so I'm absolutely clear, Timothy, I'm going to name these people for you. It's right in our text, verse 17. Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hey, Tim, you know those guys, Phil and Jaime? Don't give them a thing. They're a write-off. They're out just to waste time. They shouldn't be given any opportunities. Paul, why be so stinging? Why be so harsh? It's pretty rough, isn't it? Or is it just that Paul's more honest than we're willing to be? I wonder if Paul's been burnt by these guys repeatedly. 
And he's just trying to save Timothy of the same experience. Stay away from these guys, Timothy. They're nothing but trouble. They'll bleed you to death. I wonder if you recognise Phil and Jaime as we think about their qualities. I reckon to this day there's people like them around about us. And before we consider their particular tendencies, remember what Timothy was told to look for as he drew his circle? People that weren't quitters. People that would be faithful. People that hungered for the truth. So it stands to reason that Phil and Jaime were anything but that, right? And we see this in verse 16 of our reading. They were unfaithful and they were debate ready. Like 24-7 debate ready. They wanted to spend their days on worthless, foolish talk. And Paul says this will spread like a plague. So don't give it any attention. And verse 17, it only leads to more and more godless behaviour. All of their negative behavioural patterns were contagious apparently. And these problematic characters not only shipwrecked their own faith, in verse 18, they're turning others away from the faith too. So, so don't get sucked in, Timothy. At first, these people might appear genuine. But 12 months on, you'll be still talking about secondary issues that have nothing to do with the heart of the gospel. Things like Jaime and Phil are struggling to work out whether the days in Genesis were 24-hour periods or not. And this is Jaime and Phil. They wanted to park there in that discussion. They don't want to talk about the lordship of Jesus. They don't want to talk about surrendering to Jesus. They want to talk about whether Jesus was secretly married or not. That's a theory of great interest to them. They want to talk about the timing of Jesus' return, whether we should be pre-trib or post-trib. Phil and Jaime love that discussion. They can see movie opportunities, left behind, or is it home alone? These eschatological themes have them humming. They don't want to talk about obedience, actually applying the scripture. They're not into that, but they're into talking about translations of the Bible, and whether the King James Version is the right one or not. They love discussing these sort of matters. They would fill in a day with such things. They weren't very interested in worship actually lifting praise up to God. But they're very interested in dinosaurs and life on other planets. Have you ever met anyone like Jaime and Phil? They'll give as much time, they'll take up rather, as much time and space as you allow. Be careful. When I was three years old, a while back, my mum tells a story, I'm way too old to remember it, but my mum was a big-hearted person, so she brought a family into a home that needed a home, somewhere to belong. And this family that came into our home, I was three, and they had a two-year-old daughter. Well, guess what? Didn't take long for it to turn romantic. So here am I at three, and her at two, and things are really heating up, you know. And mum says, mum loves retelling this story. She, she said, Jonathan, do you think you'll marry her one day? Now, here we are, three and two. And my response was profound. I don't know, Mum. I haven't seen all the girls in the world yet. I'm not ready to commit. I haven't seen all the girls in the world yet. You know, there's things that at three years old are cute that at 53 are no longer cute. 
And there comes a time when a call needs to be made. And people like Jaime and Phil will never make the call. And you've got to make the call for them and say, here I've found a well-seasoned cynic who'll be still circling around these issues in 10 years' time and therefore they're not in my circle anymore. I can't keep pouring out time on them. They'll be forever swimming at the shallow end of the pool and just talking about surface issues that don't really relate to growing in Jesus. And this chatter becomes godless, Paul says, because no one's being edified. We said last week the Bible contains plenty of mystery. You know, there's enough in the 1,200 pages here to keep us debating until the rest of our lives. There is. There's enough mystery in here to keep us going for the rest of our lives. And maybe it would be a good use of time if we didn't have a world to reach. Maybe it would be a good use of time if we didn't have a world to reach. But since we do, it's not helpful. Paul says it's godless chatter and these people need to be avoided. We could spend all day talking about life on other planets. We could spend all day about what translation of the Bible we should be reading. We could spend all day on matters of eschatology. But the realisation must dawn at some point, at some point, this has just become a waste of time. Still someone will say, I can't pull out of a relationship now, John. I've been investing in this person for, I don't know, nine or ten years. If I pull away from Nigel now, he won't cope. Well, maybe not suddenly pull away, but deliberately, yes. We need to be careful of false responsibility and carrying somebody else's load for them. Andy Stanley's right. My job is never to fill anyone else's cup. Just empty mine. I'm not sure if you've reconciled this idea yet, but some people want you to fill their cup. They want you to take responsibility for their life. And sometimes it looks like mowing their lawns, like forever. And sometimes it looks like talking all day long about nothing. That's the language of 2 Timothy 2. Godless arguments, things that are never going to be life-giving talk fests that just result in hot air and as long as we stay in that circle some people just keep receiving but the 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 realization must dawn this is not productive nobody's being helped here and we could debate till the sun comes down whether it's that or whether it's being on call for needy nigel if we keep filling filling the void we actually end up working against god because the needs never felt for god if we keep stepping into it. And I hesitate to say all these things, but they're not John ideas, you know. They're Jesus ideas. They're Apostle Paul ideas. And some of us need to redraw our circle and move some people out that are just spinning donuts. That sounds hard and it's mega challenging, I know. And some of you need a good theological argument to justify this. Some of you soft-hearted people, I hope you're all soft-hearted to some extent, but some of us perhaps more than others. And you need a theological truth to hang on to, to really make this change in your life. Here's the thing. If a person is genuinely on a serious search for truth, will God leave them hanging? I don't think he will. 
I think we can be absolutely confident he won't. Need sets off alarm bells in heaven. It's where God does his best work when we become aware of our need in him. I'll invite Wendy to come forward as we close out tonight. You know, we, when we step in and rescue, like not once, of course you've got to do it in emergency situations, but when we step in and rescue over and over and over again, before people have had the opportunity to feel the ping of need, we actually end up messing up God's work. And they've never had space to feel a need of repentance. Jesus tells his story in Luke 15 in response to criticism. Uh, in Luke 15, he's hanging out with people who aren't very churchy. And these religious rites come along and say, Look at you, what are you doing with them? If you're a holy man, you wouldn't be hanging around with them. And so then Jesus goes on this story and tells about two sons and a father. We get all caught up in the wrong son. And that's where we miss context and we miss the point of Scripture over and over again. The focus of that story is the older son, actually, who never leaves the house, who thinks he's goody two-shoes. And Jesus' point is, this guy who's been reckless is more likely to get in heaven than you who just sit in church and never actually have any hard engagement with God because you're proud. That's the point of Luke 15. But I want to draw your attention to a detail in this story that relates to us drawing a circle. See, when this younger son had gone down to a foreign land and he'd really hit the rocks... In fact, he got a job feeding pigs. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, like that's bottom ends. And, and it says he got so desperate that he saw these pig scraps and he just imagined. I mean, they looked amazing to him. So desperate was his need. You know, if we were telling that story we'd, today, we'd insert a paragraph. And that would be good-hearted Christians coming along and sliding a meal under the pigsty and keeping that guy alive in the pig pen. But the father in this story doesn't get involved with the son at that point in time. He leaves space for repentance. He leaves space for that boy to feel need, to long to get back home. And when we don't do that, when we keep stepping in and rescuing and, and helping people out of every single difficulty in a cycle, then we actually work against God sometimes rather than for God. Because we visit the pig pen, don't we? And we feed that person who's stuck. But actually there comes a time where they should be feeling a need for God. And they need to return back home. And by us leaving space for need... We're leaving space for repentance. Notice the part in that story. Look at it in your own time, Luke 15. When did the father run? He didn't run to need. He ran to repentance. And there's a difference. When that son decided, I want to go home, the father runs down the road. 
and meets his son even before he gets to the to the, to the gateway. Like he's just eager to bring his son home, but he waited for that need to be felt, for that point of repentance. And then there's no condemnation, never with God. The Father meets him there at that point of repentance and pours out mercy and grace and love. You say, John, I think I hear what you're saying, but I couldn't just stand back and watch someone suffer. I mean, what am I supposed to do with my urges? I need to get involved. I need to rescue them. I can't just see someone in need and do nothing. Well, sometimes when it's become a pattern, we need to take our intensity to the prayer closet and stop rescuing and start interceding and ask God to give them a heart for repentance, for the neediness in their life to to drive them back home to the Father. And there they'll find all they need. Would you stand for prayer as we close? You know, a sermon isn't a, a cake that you eat. It's just the ingredients. And you decide what you do with it. We all need something different as we come to God tonight. We all come to the Word from different starting points. And some of us, I'm guessing, aren't reaching our kingdom capacity because we've never drawn a circle around the right people to invest into. And we need to do that. We need to discern, God, who are you calling me to? Who are you calling me to? Some of us aren't reaching our kingdom capacity because we're being manipulated. Needy Nigel's got us. And we can't seem to break the cycle. We're so used to being led around by what feels urgent that we never get around to what's important. Others are not reaching their kingdom capacity because you're that person stuck in fruitless debates, fascinated by secondary things. And that's okay as long as you've settled the primary thing, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you need to respond to that. Nothing else matters more than that. Someone else under the sound of my voice is that person living in a foreign land, feeling the sting of poor choices. The Father welcomes you back home. Don't look around to other humans. Look up. Ultimately, only God can and will satisfy as you take a step home to Him. No one is too far gone for God. And so, Lord, we come to you in these moments. We surrender our lives afresh to you. We ask that your work would go to work on us, changing us, helping us apply these principles tonight because we want to live lives that are worthy of the calling that you've placed on us, God. And so help us and give us eyes to see what you're doing and the people that you are working in. Help us not only just get caught up in need, but get caught up in the call of God. And where your Holy Spirit is really working, that we'll be able to sense that, we'll be able to discern that, that we'll get better at knowing the difference in human need and God's calling. Lord, be our teacher. Show us the way. Holy Spirit, move in us. Continue to help us. 
look to you and live close to you. Jesus, I pray for those who are far from you at this time, that they will know your arms are open. And if you've wandered from the heart of the Father and maybe your wandering is, is just pride, nothing turns God off more than that, just pride just thinking you're better than somebody else. So as we confess our sins, as we acknowledge our sins, as we say, Lord, forgive me, he always does, he always will. So thank you for your forgiveness right now, Jesus. As we look to you, as we turn to you, as we ask you to forgive us for wandering from you, and bring us back home to the Father. May we feel his embrace in these moments. May we know what it is to walk with you again. Lord, let your compassion pour out on us now. Let your grace come to us as your Holy Spirit appropriates this message to each and every one. We give thanks, Lord, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. And all God's people said, Amen.